So, this amazing event is recorded in John chapter 11, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And uh, that, of course, itself attracted an amazing uh, set of crowds. There was a crowd that was worshipful and and really like starting to recognize and open to this idea that yes, indeed, Jesus is, must be the Messiah. There was another huge crowd that was just curious, as you would imagine. You know, somebody died, was actually buried, and then came out of their grave. Uh, so, so naturally, a lot of people were even told in the passage here that, that people came not just to see Jesus, but they wanted to see Lazarus, right? That he, that he was actually alive. And, of course, it riled opposition as well. Uh, there was not only a plot to put Jesus to death, there was a plot now to put Lazarus to death because now Lazarus was seen as a threat because it was causing people to notice Jesus, right? So anyway, we pick up, though, in chapter 12 as we're about to rush right into what we'll preach about tonight, which starts in verse 12 is what we'll preach about tonight when, the, when, the, when Jesus enters the, the city. But listen to this, starting in verse 1 of chapter 12. Then, meaning after all the stuff surrounding Lazarus's resurrection, then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor... You have with you always, but me you do not have always. Now, a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away. And believe Jesus. And then the next day was what we would call Palm Sunday, which we'll preach about tonight. All right? So, what happens here is something that, in our limited time that I have here today, I want to talk about worship. There is a tremendous lesson about worship. And the worship, of course, is wrapped up in what Mary did, right? Uh, And the worship, we're also taught about worship from the way that Judas Iscariot and the chief priests reacted to this act of worship. 
We're also taught about worship by the way that Jesus reacted to this worship, aren't we? So I just have a few points that I want to share with you this morning. And let's just get right into it because I know my time is already getting a little on the short side. But I want you to hear this. So the first thing you see is this act of worship that happens. Let's just go right to it without breaking down every verse that leads up to it. You just see this act in verse 3. Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard and anointed Jesus' feet. The parallel accounts of this in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark uh, say that she broke open this box and poured it on his head. And then here it says that she, she wiped his feet with her ha- hair. And I, that's not a contradiction. I believe both of those things happened. Just the detail remembered in Matthew and the detail remembered here is different. Matthew and Mark don't even record the event of Lazarus being raised from the dead. That's one of the great things about those gospel accounts is that in many cases they're not the same. Some people like to look at the gospel accounts and uh, if they find little details that are different, they'll say, aha, see, they contradict each other. And boy, oh boy, I mean, you could not be farther from the truth on that one of the great authenticators of the gospel is the, this is the differences between the four accounts, right? Because, because that points away from conspiracy and points to the authentic accounts that are being given, that John remembered this aspect. You know, because the Lord is the one who gives the word, and that's why there is so much verbatim parallel there. But there is like the human element of how we get God's word as well that the Lord always uses. And so you have, you have Matthew who probably was already acquainted with Mark's account and therefore they're very close to one another. You have Luke not recording this event at all. And then you have John recording it but event, uh, remembering a couple of details that are a little different. Like Matthew and Mark point out that the house they're in belonged to someone called Simon the leper. All right, That's not recorded here. Um, but uh, and, and then also you have Matthew and Mark telling us that this event would be remembered everywhere the gospel was preached as a memorial to Mary who did this wonderful thing. John doesn't point that out, but John points these details out. So, so it's amazing and wonderful. We'll focus mostly on what John says about it here. So anyway, we'll go with what John says here for the moment. And she anoints Jesus' feet and wipes the feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Let's just think about this verse a little bit. What does this teach us about worship? Number one, it teaches us that worship involves the best of what we are. Worship is a priority. Worship involves not sacrifice in the Old Testament sense of where they would put an animal on an altar and slay it, but Worship involves us taking the priority and the best of who we are and just laying it before God and giving Him praise and thanks and from our hearts proclaiming the greatness of His glory. Mary, it tells us here, offers this box of this pricey ointment. And I did some reading about that and discovered that at the time, and I'm sure I've pointed this out before and you've probably read it elsewhere, you know, 
we, we invest money this way, that way. There are various ways that that happens. This was one of the ways that like somebody could lock up money without having a big stack of coins laying around in their house, right? They could invest in something like this. It was in a box that would preserve it for just years and years and years and years and years. It could be passed on to another generation. But it's basically an investment. You might say that Mary tapped into her 401k and and poured it all out at Jesus' feet. That's kind of what's happening here. But like she takes this box and breaks this ointment. And as soon as this box is broken and this ointment is spilled out, it's not worth anything anymore. That's what's amazing about it. This is something that, like Judas, like Judas Iscariot pointed out, it could have been sold for a lot of money. right? And that was the whole point of owning it, was that you could lock up that money in something that would be safer than a stack of coins laying around. right? You could hide a box like this better than you could a giant bag of coins. right? So, so you have... Uh, you have the fact that this, this priority in Mary's heart is to worship Jesus. This is not at all an attempt to talk about, here, here's where the televangelist would enter and say, you need to give money to me so that God will bless you. And that's all just fallacious nonsense, right? The point here is that Mary's heart is revealed as loving Jesus more than she did this investment, loving Jesus more than she did her own money, loving Jesus more than anything else. I mean, they were already having a dinner to celebrate. Isn't that enough? No, she brings this out and offers this worship. There's more meaning to it, which Jesus attaches later. But I want to just tell you that Jesus himself preached this. Don't worry. Don't worry saying what, we sh- what shall we eat. This is Matthew 6.31. What shall we eat or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? Don't worry. For after all these things the pagans seek. Or the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God And his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you, right? So there is the element of worship that takes Jesus and gives him the first place in the worshiper's heart. If you're here today and you're in Christ and you count yourself among those who are redeemed and you're looking forward with earnest hope and assurance of redemption and everlasting life, in this existence that you're walking in day by day now, does Jesus have that place in your heart? Don't go home and get all your money and give it to me. I don't want it. The church doesn't want it. What we want is for your heart to have Jesus in the first place of your life. All other things fall aside. And what you desire is to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. He's redeemed you. And now your life is about the pursuit of his kingdom, about worship. Second thing about worship that we learn from this story is that worship is about Jesus. Right? This act that she did was done specifically for Jesus. 
the object of worship when we gather, the object of worship as we walk and live, the object. We talked about the priority of our worship. Now here's the object of our worship. The object of our worship is Jesus. Yes, we worship God the Father, but God the Father has told us that the only way to Him is through His Son. Faith in Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit in us, but the Holy Spirit points us to Jesus. One of the ways you know that something is of the Holy Spirit is if Jesus is exalted. If something happens in the middle of a church service that looks strange and chaotic, it's probably because it's strange and chaotic and has nothing to do with God. If the Holy Spirit is leading or directing something that happens in someone's life or in a worship service, if it's truly from the Holy Spirit, you'll know because the only attention or glory that comes from it will be given to Jesus, the Son of God. John, just a few chapters after this, John 15, 26, Jesus said, when the Helper comes, that's the Holy Spirit, who I shall send to you from the Father. So you see, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in that passage, right? So the Helper, what Jesus says, when the Helper comes, that's the Holy Spirit, whom I, that's Jesus, the Son of God, shall send to you from the Father, that's God the Father. So you see our triune God all at work in that one statement. When the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify of me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So, what are the two... You were told to test the spirits, right? Here's the basic way to test if something's from the Holy Spirit. Number one... It brings glory to Jesus Christ. And number two, it causes Christians to testify of Jesus Christ. Because the work of Jesus Christ is to spread his gospel and to make disciples of those who believe. That in itself is worship. Third thing that it teaches us, and maybe I'm getting a tiny bit poetic with this one, but not really. But the idea that the, I mean, I mean, John had to point out that the fragrance filled the room, right? Well, he didn't have to, but he did. It's just amazing that he pointed out that this box was broken and the fragrance filled the whole room. Bear with me, but the worship of Jesus, the true worship of God permeates everything like that. It permeates a church, not the building, the hearts of the people. It permeates the community because it spreads forth from us. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 15. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge. Did you catch that? Through us. So we're like the ointment in the box. Through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge. We know him. So the, 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 the compounds and the elements that made up that perfume, when the box was broken, the smell of it filled the whole house. We're like the perfume in the box. And the knowledge of God that we have is permeated throughout the whole world. When we go forth as we should. That is worship. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ. 
Stop. We are to God the fragrance of Christ. The Bible, how many times in the Old Testament does it talk about (coughs) the offerings being a a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord? You know, what's a sweet, uh, that's worship. That's a picture of worship. That, that, on, that on that incense altar in, in, in the temple, right before the Holy of Holies, right in front of that veil that tore in half when Jesus died, there's this incense altar that was perpetually lit in the smoke, the smell of it, the fragrance of it went up, and it would be a sweet-smelling aroma perpetually to the Lord. It was, it was a symbol of perpetual worship. We are that to God. We, our worship comes as the fragrance of the knowledge of God is spread throughout the world through us. And that sweet aroma is smelled by heaven and brings pleasure to God. That's worship. Interesting that John had to point out there that the the fragrance of the perfume filled the room. That's what worship should do. It just spreads. People worshiping Yahweh. The Bible tells us that the world has turned their backs on God. The world's forgotten God. And so God has given them over to a debased mind to do all these things that you read about and you hear about. But in the midst of the world, God has chosen for himself and saved for himself, redeemed for himself by his own grace at the price that he paid. A people who diffuse the knowledge of him to that world. We push Back against the flood of all of that stuff by preaching the gospel, by gathering to worship, by lifting up his name in praise. And that itself, the smell goes two directions. It goes horizontal and it goes vertical. The aroma spreads throughout the world and the aroma goes up to heaven and is pleasing to God. Look at verse 4. So there's three things about worship. Worship is costly and is a priority. You see the priority of worship. You see the object of worship. You see what I would call maybe the product of worship or the fragrance of worship. You see that? That's all you. That's not somebody else. That's us. Then you see, you start to see the detracting from worship. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot. What's the modern phrase for this? Virtue signaling. You ever heard that? That's like the new term, right? Virtue signaling. That's when people must profess how wonderful and righteous they are and, and, they, and how like, oh, they care for the poor and they want to criticize everything else that's done. That's what this is. Here you go. Some 2,000-year-old virtue signaling. Are you ready? One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, right, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And of course, you know, the word of God nails it because John comes right in here and, you know, boom. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but for, for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. It's complete fraud. It's complete hypocrite. Right? What did Jesus say about hypocrisy earlier? Take heed Take heed that you don't do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, don't sound a trumpet before you like the hypocrites in the synagogues do. And in the streets that they may have glory from men. I say to you, they have their reward. Right? You know what he means by that, right? 
Like, like the person who gives to the poor but has to make sure everybody sees them do it, their reward is everybody seeing them do it, which is here now and gone. But the reward for the person who doesn't, as he, Jesus goes on to say, doesn't let the right hand know what the left hand is doing. They just do good to the poor and they don't care. In fact, they prefer that nobody sees it or hears about it. God sees that. And God who sees in secret will reward you openly. Uh, Romans 12 verse 9 says, let love be without hypocrisy. Simple as that. Judas is, in addition to being a betrayer, is a hypocrite. Like the religious leaders were. Now, Jesus. Verse 7. Let her alone. <laughs> so, that's so Jesus. You know? Let her alone. What's wrong with you? She's kept this for the day of my burial. You know, it's funny. We always talk in the Gospels when we explain the Gospel. We always talk about Christ dying for us and rising from the dead. I say it all the time. And we leave out that little detail, the burial. You know, when, when, when the Apostle Paul summarized the Gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he said, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the Gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried... And that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. The burial of Christ is important. Because that burial with that grave, with that stone, with that Roman seal on it. Was a big marker to the world with the guards in front of it. Was a big marker to the world that he actually died. He was really died. He really died. He was really dead. And they really buried him in a grave. And so when on Easter Sunday morning, they go and the stone's gone and they go inside and he's not there. They knew it was no fraud. Amen. He was buried. They observed the place where the Lord was laid. Right? You know what Mary and her worship is doing? It says here, she's anointing me for my burial. And then, as I pointed out, John doesn't point this out, but Matthew and Mark both say, here it is from Matthew 26, 13, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached, in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Woe along with the gospel being preached, you and I are fulfilling that word of Jesus right now. The gospel being preached is a function of opening up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and reading it and expositing it and explaining what it says to the world. Not just those four books, but especially those because they give us the account of what happened when Jesus was here. And recorded in that is what that woman did. God had it written down, what Mary did, in his word, preserved for the last 2,000 years, so that you cannot but mention it if you honestly 
handle the word the way you should, which is going verse by verse through it. You can't avoid it. You can't go around it. Hand in hand with the gospel being preached everywhere in the world is that Mary broke that box of ointment and worshipped her Lord with it. What does that say to you about what the Lord thinks of worship? He wanted it remembered that he was worshipped. And we approach worship sometimes so casual and so lazy. Jesus stood up for a worshiper. He stood up for her. Leave her alone. She's anointed me for my burial. And everywhere the gospel is preached, she's going to be remembered for doing this. When Paul writes about the summation of the gospel, Christ died according to the scriptures and was buried. And on the third day, he rose from the dead according to the scriptures. And this woman, with this act of worship, marked it for all eternity. Worship is so important. Worship is so important. What does it say about what Christ thinks of worship? You think you can, you think you can learn to elevate worship into a higher priority? I've got to read something to you now. I'm going to close with this. Right? There's more to say. I was going to talk about how then it gets opposed and everything else. We'll come back to the story tonight. All right? So... Going through some old stuff. Found this book. So this book is called Halley's Bible Handbook. Anyone ever heard of this? It's like, yeah, some of you have, right? You've been in the faith a long time. You've heard of Halley's Bible Handbook. He wrote, this guy, Henry Halley, wrote a pamphlet 24 years ago that was like 16 pages long. And, it's, and it grew over the decades in, into this book. And it's like a standard in like pastors, libraries, seminary students, everything. I have like two, I I think I had three copies of it at one point. Now I have two. This one was given to me by a friend years ago who was a seminary student long before I was a pastor. And uh, it's funny, there's a, there's a, there's a pay, there's a section in the back of the book. Mr. Mr. Howley, by the way, uh, had the entire Bible memorized. And uh, I mean, I mean, it was like you could read the Wikipedia page or an article, whatever. I mean, this guy was, this guy was like, like Paul Washer says, if they slit his veins, he would bleed Bible. You understand? That, that's, that's who this guy was, all right? He has a section in the back, which is under a section called The Most Important Thing in This Book. Right? Save the best for last. Under that heading is a section called The Habit of Going to Church Every Sunday Morning. We can relate to that. But listen to how he says it. The habit of going to church every Sunday morning as an act of worship to God. Now listen. All Christian people ought to go to church every Sunday morning. Unless hindered by sickness. Hey, here's old school. Here's old school, evangelical, biblical oriented Christianity. Not all this modern garbage that says, oh, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. And all, you know, all, all these other smug reactions that people have that just take the idea of corporate worship and just shove it down, shove it aside, throw it in the garbage altogether. Here's old school, memorize the whole Bible, Christianity. All Christian people ought to go to church every Sunday morning unless hindered by sickness 
or necessary work or necessity of some kind. It ought to be a matter of conscience as an act of worship. And that, that, that statement really blew my mind because it was something finding this book. Not quite Hilkiah finding the book of the law in the temple in Josiah's day. Right, but but uh, but pretty amazing to find like some old thing that reflects what Christians used to think, right? But the idea was not just the stuff that we do. It's not just listening to the sermon that is worship. It's not just praying. It's not just singing songs that is worship. That's true. All of those things are worship. But showing up and being there is worship. Now listen to the case that he makes for it. The churches. You're not going to you're not going to believe this is like I'm reading this in America in 2022 because because nobody thinks this anymore. Well, we we do, but not many. Listen, the churches are the most important institutions in any community. The Sunday morning service is the church's principal way of doing its work. It is the event of the community life. Nothing ever happens in any community as important to the life of the community as the regular Sunday morning church services. Every community ought to love its churches and, at this appointed time, turn out en masse to honor him in whose name the church exists. Assuming the pulpit to be faithful and the services what they ought to be, if the churches were filled every Sunday morning, the community would take notice evangelistic work of the church would be done. Financial problems would be solved. Missionary problems would be solved. The whole church program would be advanced. It is the one thing that would make the churches strong. The one thing on which depends the solution of the problems facing Protestantism. If all Protestant church people would stir themselves up to be faithful in this one fundamental Christian duty... It would set forward the influence of the church and the church for whom uh, and the Christ for whom the church stands more than all the rest of the things the churches are doing put together. And then it goes on. That's just the introduction to that section. If I had more time, I, I, I thought about just reading the whole thing. But listen, you, I think this book, this book is so old, I think you can find it on Google Books for free. So just like find it and go to that section in the back and read it. But you get the idea? Our assembling is worship. And he's right. It's, It's a voice from a bygone era where they got it. You know? It's not, it's not the Facebook, Instagram, TikTok world. It's not the narcissistic world of everything must revolve around me and accommodate me. It's not the world of heinous, false doctrines of demons, prosperity gospels, and charismatic, hyper-charismatic approaches to everything that spawn all sorts of evil. Or even a a hyper-Calvinistic approach to things. That says God is just sovereign, so what I do doesn't matter anyway. I have no responsibility for anything. God, listen, all the garbage that the modern world has put forward that has completely obscured the understanding of worship in bygone eras. 
Don't buy it. Don't buy the modern stuff. See what Mary did. See the priority of her worship, even the costliness of her worship. See that Jesus was the object of her worship. See how the fragrance filled the room and you yourself be part of the diffusing of that fragrance. See how the hypocrites came up against it. See how Jesus defended the worship. Leave her alone. See how Jesus was so impressed, God was so impressed with this worship that he saw fit that it would be attached to the preaching of the gospel as a memorial to it for all time, recorded for all eternity in the canon of the word of God. See how high worship is. We think any sense of duty, this guy used the word duty, we're afraid of that word now because we see duty and we say, ooh, legalism, right? We see duty and we think, oh no, no one's going to tell me what to do. You know, duty doesn't have to be... Duty does not have to be rote religious obligation. Duty can absolutely be the perfect, pure expression of the heart. When done in humility... We choose to do what's right because it pleases someone other than ourselves. That's duty. I might suggest even that this represents an act of duty. Jesus prayed. If it's possible, let it pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. You don't see a sacred, 100% sincere, heartfelt duty of the Son to the Father in that? Are you blind? Let us be worshipers. Let us be worshipers. True worshipers. True worshipers. Whom God would be pleased to say, let them alone. Whom God would be pleased to say, let's remember what they're doing. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, so much for your word. Now, having heard your word, help us to go from here to be doers of it and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. Please give us the strength of the Holy Spirit to be obedient to you, that the aroma might please you and that you might even spread it throughout the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand up.